Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Welcome to episode 98 of The Storytellers with C. Evan Stewart and the man nobody knew. Mr. Stewart is a senior partner at a New York City law firm. He is a visiting professor at Cornell University, an adjunct professor at Fordham University, a regular contributor to the New York Law Journal. He's an expert witness, frequently an expert consultant for CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, and other media outlets. He's present on many, many boards, but today he comes to us as a storyteller. Welcome to the Storyteller's Microphone, Evan. Thank you, Grace. It's a real pleasure to meet you. It's wonderful to have you. I have so many guests who do fiction and nonfiction. And I would tell you that I probably write more nonfiction than I do fiction. So it's really a pleasure to have you. Um, tell me, though, why this story now? Well, this is uh, the now is a good, good, good point, because I actually took on this assignment 21 years ago from a beloved law professor of mine who had taken on the the biography of Myron Taylor in his retirement. And he became very, very sick. He almost died. And he recovered, but not well enough to complete what he had started. So he asked me uh, if I would finish what he had started. And I was so fond of this man. Um, and I didn't really realize what I was getting into when I said yes, um, because so much work needed to be done uh, so here I am 20 some odd years later, having finished the book. Uh, but the project is a much better book because of the amount of time it took to finish it. I, I think that um, is frequently the case. I was speaking to an author the other day who was talking about 30 drafts of their book. So tell us about The Man Nobody Knew. I absolutely am enthralled with the book. It is The Man Nobody, Myron Taylor, The Man Nobody Knew. I love everything about it, including the cover and how it wraps around, brilliantly done, tells us instantly that he was also involved in the Vatican, but he was involved in so much more. What a fascinating man. Tell us about him. So uh, even before we get to the Vatican and his diplomatic career, he has an amazing business career. Almost everything he touched turned to gold. So at, literally from a very small town in upstate New York, he transforms an, himself and becomes literally what people call the czar of the textile industry. He completely takes over and transforms the textile industry. Then having made a fortune in that, he was a young, relatively young man, decides, well, why not enjoy all this money I have? And so he retires. Uh, and that's essentially the early part of the 20s. Um, but he's in such demand. He's on literally every corporate board. He saves Goodyear Tire from going under. He merges the two biggest banks in New York. Um, and that's in his, quote, retirement. Then in 1927, his very good friend, J.P. Morgan, literally begs him to save U.S. Steel, which he literally does. He literally saves U.S. Steel, takes it through the Depression, and it emerges from the depression as the world's most important, largest uh, commercial enterprise. He then thinks, okay, <laughs> I've done my part. I'm going to retire a second time and enjoy life and um, his vast wealth. 
And then the phone rings and it's his friend, Franklin Roosevelt. And his first job is to save the Jews who are in Germany. And incredibly, Myron Taylor reaches a, a written agreement with the Nazis to get 150,000 Jews out of Germany with their families to follow. It's just amazing. Unfortunately, um, Germany invades Poland, World War II happens, and that doesn't come to fruition. Then, literally on the eve of Christmas, 1939, the phone rings again, and it's his friend, Franklin Roosevelt, asking him to take on another job, which is to be his, so the words are his ambassador extraordinary, close quote, to the Vatican. And in that role, he's at the heart of seven or eight of the most important geopolitical issues of World War II. It's an absolutely an astonishing story because Myron Taylor wanted no credit for anything that he did, which is why he is the man nobody knew. But there was, I, I'm always fascinated when you say, well, his friend Franklin Roosevelt, his friend J.P. Morgan, I think there was this time I believe, and you can correct me, in this period of American history where all this wealth knew each other and was connected and supported um, sometimes very philanthropic causes and to broker this deal um, to help the Jews get out of Germany. Is, is, is that a the correct assumption of this, I don't want to call it the golden age of America, but this very connected age? Uh, it's partly right and respectfully partly not right. So, yes, all these people did know one another. They didn't necessarily all like each other, though. Okay. And that's the, that's the difference with Myron Taylor is, is Taylor, uh, the key to his success, or besides his brilliance, is, uh, number one, he's very much a 19th century Victorian gentleman with all that entails. But he also had a very distinctive trait, uh, which very few people had then, and virtually nobody has now, which is the ability to sit down with the other person and listen to them and listen closely because he didn't always assume he was right. Maybe the other fellow had a reason for why he had his view. And maybe by talking to him, listening to him, as opposed to shouting at him and trying to dominate him, he could come to some sort of agreement with that person. And that was a critical factor in his success in business, and it carried over into his diplomacy. The, the ability to listen, to, to empathize with the other person's point of view, and to try to come to an accommodation with it. Again, think of someone in public life <laughs> that that describes today. Uh, it's hard to think of anyone uh, in particular, but that was a key to his success, no doubt about it. Um, so just It wasn't just the fact he was wealthy and knew all these people. Yes, that's true. But let me give you another example. In the Roosevelt administration, very high powered charging people who really often hated each other. So the Secretary of State hated the Undersecretary under of State and the Undersecretary of State hated the Secretary of State. They both loved Myron Taylor. Okay, <laughs> an important trait for all of us to learn. I, when I was going through the book, I mean, the, the number of lives that are taught, you've touched. You've already talked about Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, Franco, Mussolini. We haven't gotten to Pius Twelve yet. President Truman. Tell us more. It's unbelievable. I mean, so he is the man nobody knew, which is the title that the national media gave him when he took over U.S. Steel because he didn't give press conferences. 
So even though he's one of the wealthiest men in the country uh, and was now running U.S. Steel, he didn't give press conferences. So uh, Franco, just one example, he in literally an hour and a half, he talked Franco out of joining the Axis side in World War II. Uh, it's sort of, sort of amazing, but that's just a fact. Um, Winston Churchill, uh, he, he is critically involved in the uh, what Roosevelt ultimately declares is the unconditional surrender policy. And there's an amazing dinner at, at, the, at uh, Churchill's, the prime minister's home at 10 Downing Street in London, where uh, Taylor comes back from the Vatican explaining that the Vatican will, will play ball with an unconditional surrender policy, which he has brokered with the Pope. Um, so on and on and on. I mean, I, I, the interesting thing for me about this uh, is that these stories have never been told before because Taylor's stories had never been told before. The archival, archival materials where these stories are have never been literally mined and so this book is replete over and over and over again with things people have never known about very famous people that changed World War II and literally changed the world we live in today. That was something that really struck me in the book. Uh, you may have the most well-documented um, footnote, uh, annotated uh, nonfiction I have ever um, had the privilege of reading. Uh, it's it's better than a doctoral dissertation. So, uh, so the amount of research that you had to do had to be daunting, and a lot of it, I guess, was at Cornell, which was uh, Mr. Taylor's alma mater as well. Yes, well, that was that was part of my professor's. Uh, inducement he thought all of the taylor papers were at cornell that, that turns out not to be, that is mr taylor's alma mater uh that's not true the taylor papers are also at the roosevelt library the truman library the library of congress the library of congress annex the baker library at harvard has important papers the columbia or oral history project here in new york and of course the vatican archival materials which have been released over time bit by bit by bit by bit so these archival materials are all over the place. So talk, talk to us a little bit about the research for that. I'm sorry. The, talk to us about your research process. What did you enjoy? How did you like becoming a storyteller in a much different way than your law career would have ever led you to? Yeah, so doing archival research is sort of like being an archeologist. You, you're digging in the ground under one pyramid and you find a jar or whatever you find, but the top of the jar is missing. You think, well, the top of the jar must be around here somewhere, but then you keep digging and 500 yards away or, or a mile away, you find the other piece of the puzzle. That's sort of what archival research is uh, in a project like this. I would find something at Cornell and then find the other part of it in the National Archives, or I'd find something at the Roosevelt Library and it would be, the other part would be at, at Cornell. It's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating at times, but when you ultimately find both pieces, it's a pretty eureka cool moment. Um, the other, other thing that's really cool is um, when you find something 
because obviously I've never met Mr. Taylor. I've never met anyone who knew Mr. Taylor. So I could never talk to any of those people. But in the Columbia Oral History Project, there are some amazing things that when I find them and read them, I feel like, my God, I really know this man. The, the incident that's being revealed is, is so essential to who Mr. Taylor was that I don't have to meet Mr. Taylor. Another person telling me this story has, has given me a blinding insight to this man. And I'm assuming he did not have children. I know that uh, he kept on thinking that he was going to retire with his wife and that just kept not happening. Yeah, he, he didn't have children. I don't know the reason for that, um, but I would say he and his wife, Annabelle, she's on the cover with him uh, after their a papal audience at the Vatican. They had a wonderful, wonderful loving relationship. And people who knew Mr. Taylor well knew that the best way into his heart, if you will, was through Annabelle. So it's fascinating to see these letters from Churchill, President Truman, President Roosevelt. They almost invariably always sign off saying, and please give my love to Annabelle. Um, they knew that that was the soft spot in his heart and they had a really truly loving relationship. There's a wonderful picture. Uh, it's one of the last pictures in the book of him being very solicitous of her uh, in her old age on his last trip to the Vatican in 1952. And it really, it, to me anyway, it, it, it is so emblematic of what a how much he loved her and what a su wonderful supportive relationship they had. It's a wonderful marriage. One of the things that struck me was that, you know, he, as I mentioned, and you mentioned as well, that he thought he would retire. And in today's world, I think we would call it pivoting. He always pivoted back to something else. What was his motivation there, do you think? Well, to pivot, he, he just thought, if the President of the United States wants me to do something, it's my duty to do it. And um, as I say in the preface of the book, this is what made him so valuable to Roosevelt, because there's only one other presidential aide that I know of that was like that under Roosevelt, a very important man named Harry Hopkins. And this was important for Roosevelt because he, especially in a key role like this, he had to have someone in the Vatican who did not, did not have a separate agenda, was not trying to advance something that was inconsistent with what the president wanted. Just by contrast, when Joseph Kennedy was the ambassador to Great Britain, he was causing all sorts of problems for Roosevelt because he was trying to promote himself all the time and wouldn't take orders from the president. This is the absolute opposite type of thing. And Roosevelt knew he could count on that. So like, Taylor took on these jobs for Roosevelt with some degree of reluctance, but he felt it was his duty. Again, this 19th century Victorian gentleman, if the president needs me, sincerely needs me, I will do it. It's as simple as that. You've taught us a few things that are important in today's world, the ability to listen, the ability to bring people together. Well, what are some of the other lessons perhaps that we should learn from Myron Taylor, the man nobody who knew, nobody knew uh, in today's world? In today's world. Well, one of the interesting things is the, the what's going on in Ukraine, right? That's very similar to the world we were facing when Taylor takes on this assignment. So. One thing we learn is while history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, there are a lot of things in history that are quite similar. So when we think about the world we live in today, um, so 
he was the original architect of the economic world we live in today. One of the things he was doing in World War II when he could not get back to the Vatican was overseeing post-war economic planning, which leads to the Bretton Woods Agreement. That's an agreement that is essentially governing our economic world today. Similarly, he is one of the godfathers, a handful of godfathers of the United Nations. Obviously, we live in a world where the United Nations is pretty important, um, but he's right at the center of that. So those are some of the geopolitical things that he did. Um, I, I'm not sure I can, besides how his ability to deal with people and bring them together and, and, and so let me give you let me give you a classic example of that. Please. He he was the first industrial leader to agree to unionization of his company. He met with uh, John L. Lewis, who was the head of the CIO, who was a very difficult fellow, to put it mildly, and he came to came to favorable terms to unionize U.S. Steel. All of his other industrial leaders thought he was a traitor. It was the smartest thing he ever did. It not only was a decent thing to do for the U.S. steel workers, but it it helped U.S. steel uh, emerge from the depression, going gangbusters while everyone else was having labor riots. JP and he Morgan, never fired anyone, as I understand. Exactly. At, the, at the depth of the depression, he didn't fire anyone. Can you imagine a CEO doing that today? It's unthinkable. But J.P. Morgan, again, when he unionized allowed unionization to be at U.S. Steel, J.P. Morgan said, it's the finest thing I've ever seen in business. Right? So, so much inspiration uh, comes from this book. You've had a very active, big law career, and I, I'm not exactly sure how you had time to write this, but how has writing this book changed you? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's made me realize some mistakes I've made along the way. I wish I, wish I were a better person like Mr. Taylor, the ability to sit down and um, be more empathetic with people. I think I've learned a lot from that. Um, it's probably too late in my career to, to uh, be, be as effective now as I could have been, say, 20 or 30 years ago. But um, I've, I've learned from that. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I have a, a, a great deal more. So let me give you one example. I, I have, I, I can't. I don't know whether this is true today, but I had no idea how complicated and complex the Catholic Church was in 1930 and 1940. Uh, not just in Rome, but in the United States, it, 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 the, the political issues, the doctrinal issues, just unbelievable. And the, and not everyone was rowing the boat in the same direction, to put it mildly. It's, it's an amazingly complex thing, which was fascinating to, to try to untangle, like why was the Bishop of, of Detroit not getting along with the Bishop of Chicago and the, the apostolic delegate in Washington? And why weren't these people following orders from the Vatican? I mean, it's just like, and Taylor's right in the middle of all these people trying to advance Roosevelt's ball forward uh, so those are things I, I've learned so much in doing this. Uh, I had, a, I thought, a pretty strong historical background before, but uh, that was interesting to me. Watching Franklin Roosevelt manipulate people. 
I always knew he was a very skillful president, but he was a, a master of this art. And the, the Taylor appointment to the Vatican is like, wow, he's doing like 12 different, he never did one thing, a thing for one reason. He, he did these, he did the Taylor thing for like 12 different reasons. And he, he never, he had a famous saying, I don't want my left hand to know what my right hand is doing. So it, it's just fascinating to see this process as he's making these decisions and bouncing, it's like a pinball. He's bouncing the ball off of different walls, knowing where he wants the ball ultimately to end up. And of course, that's where it all ends up. So watching that happen as I'm pouring through the archives and then having the fun of writing it, was fun. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you wrote it. I, I think it's a brilliant book with so many lessons for us. It's the man, Myron Taylor, the man nobody knew. Mr. Evan Stewart, thank you for being here with me on The Storytellers today. Grace, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Take care. Thank you, everybody. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.